Good morning, Twitter. I'm David Mack. He is Cy Jones. It's Tuesday. It's snowing. Ooh. It's freezing in this studio. And you are cold. watching AMTD. It's cold outside and colder inside, but that's because you got two ice queens hosting. <laughs> um, I'm going to try to do the Shit's Creek. It's, it, is it you, David? David. 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 <laughs> There are like so many. Shout out A's to Annie and Murphy. T's. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my well. God. Um, hi. Hi. Good to be here. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Oh, sometimes. Yeah. You're having a good time? Well, you're nice to me so far. We'll I have said goes. like two nice things to David since 7 a.m. this morning, uh, which is two more that's nice a record. things than I usually yeah. say. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, salty. Here we go. Let's change the mood before we uh, ruin <laughs> it. Uh, let's get into this. Esquire magazine cover that has really taken over the timeline yeah. in the last hour. Zach Stafford of uh, The Advocate magazine tweeted this, dropping this cover during Black History Month is just chef's kiss perfect. Thank you for making the noise. You're yes, welcome. This morning Esquire dropped this cover story titled, An American Boy, What It's Like to Grow Up White, Middle Class and Male in the Era of Social Media, School Shootings, Toxic Masculinity, Me Too, and a Divided Country. And I'm reading that in the Ben Folds lyric song there. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> Here's a pull quote from the story um, from that teenager. Uh, Last year was really bad. I could not say anything without pissing someone off. The cover has pissed people off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about this? Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones at the Times this morning was like, I think it's important that we have a discussion about, you know, whiteness in this country. I think that's... Masculinity. Masculinity. It's, uh, I think, and I read the story this morning. It's interesting. Uh, but I will say it's certainly a choice that cover to lead with that story. It's part of a series. Let's yeah. be clear that the Esquire is going to do on. That was um, one of the questions I had, and it's like, yeah. it, like it'll focus on LGBT. Yes, all like, the, there'll be yeah. uh, women and right. uh, kids of color. Right. But I think leading with that is certainly a choice, and that title, American Boy, obviously is like uh, making people uncomfortable. Right. So. And what stood out to me is that the editor in chief of Esquire magazine, in his letter that opens this issue, Jay Felden, um, he says that it was inspired in part by his own son. Jay Felden is white, uh, as you might have guessed, um, and that he was like concerned about like the environment, his own son. So there's there's a relationship between the editor's identity, his own concerns, and then how that impacted the story. And you know, he used to be the editor in chief of Town and Country, which is literally like the fancy fancy country club kind of print magazine. So yeah, I mean, it's again to this point. I was like, let's just imagine, you know, um, in in February of of 2019, a cover from Esquire magazine that says an American boy, and it's a black teenager from Chicago for example, talking about his concerns. Because I'm like, you don't think black kids or Latino kids or Asian kids aren't worried about Me Too in politics? No, you know, but this is now the lens through which we'll see the series. It's gonna be interesting to watch. Yeah. So for now, um, let's continue to drag people. Let's turn to the Oscars. I feel like they're ready, they're ready. Uh, Scott Wambler tweeted this, the Academy choosing to hand out the Oscar award for best Cinematography uh, during a goddamn commercial break uh, is just the latest hilarious misstep in what's shaping up to be one of the most ill-advised Oscars telecasts of all time. The Oscars are yeah. be a train wreck this year. Doesn't it right? feel yeah. like, and, and I'm just like, it's still not even this week. I think we're still like two weeks it's something away. like two weeks away, yeah. It's just garbage, but, but yeah. They need to make the ceremony shorter. They've right. decided the to problem. shaft some things to the commercial break. Uh-huh. I would say if you were the family of, you know, the cinematography winner and the film editing winner yeah. watching at home and you didn't get to see your mom or dad on TV, right. except you'd be a little 
pissed. You'd off. be like, oh, I was so hoping that when I won the award for best uh, film editing, you know, Kevin Hart would be there <laughs> to call me a faggot when he handed me that trophy. I just, I'm denied this opportunity. I am not going to talk about Kevin Hart again. <laughs> Let's take it to the timeline. Uh, he hates me enough as it is. How would you fix the Oscars? Because I'm sure they're listening. They are desperate for answers. Tweet us using your thoughts using the hashtag. AM to DM. <laughs> James started to run out of the studio just mentioning Kevin Hart. Okay, here's a tweet from Ryan Broderick. Incredible. French media's worst kept secret, a private Twitter cabal of male journalists called the LOL League that have been coordinating harassment campaigns against women for years has finally been exposed. Ryan Broderick, senior reporter for BuzzFeed News, joins us now. Ryan, bonjour. Welcome back to New York. Salut. <laughs> uh, salut, salut. Uh, what exactly uh, was it? First of all, is it LOL League, LOL League? Uh, How do you say it in French? Yeah. It's a uh, League du LOL. Okay. So it's like uh, League of LOL or League of LOL. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, who did it involve and what were these guys up to? Uh, so it's been going on since like 2009, which is incredible, like almost since Twitter began. And it was started by a writer at Liberation, which is like a big French newspaper. And he just started collecting. You know, like those mid 2000s Twitter celebrities who had like reached 50K and then like their job was to just be a Twitter person in media? That like he would just start collecting them if they were white and male and straight and whatever, putting them in this Facebook group. And then all these sort of like fake Twitter kind of celebrity people became more and more influential. They started working their way up through French media. And now uh, it's been exposed that they've basically been running like uh, their own private 4chan for the better part of a decade. My goodness. I mean, when people talk about just, you know, Me Too and, and, and sexual harassment and culture, I mean, this is like uh, over the top, an over the top yeah. metaphor for it. So can you kind of walk us through some examples of the harassment campaigns they ran? Yeah. So they their big favorite thing was targeting individual women who were vocal about feminism, about sexism, about racism. They were also targeting uh, LGBT people. And they would pick a person and then they would just antagonize them. And uh, uh, several, right? I mean, French media is like completely blown apart right now, going through like years and years of this stuff. But lots of writers have talked about how, you know, you wouldn't hear from them for months and all of a sudden an account that you suspected was connected to the Low League would start, you know, harassing you again. Um, one of the, the more heartbreaking things that like has been confirmed, and this is the other problem, there's a lot of unconfirmed information, but one of the Worst confirmed things I'd seen was that uh, someone from this group set up a fake phone interview with a woman pretending to offer her a job, secretly recorded it, and then put it on SoundCloud. Jesus. And, 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 and that was awful. Why? What, what was the intent there? What happened with that person? Well, the, the really interesting bit of context about this is that these men worked their way up through progressive left-leaning liberal magazines. And so what appears to have happened is that, you know, on the surface, they were, you know, woke as hell. And then in the background, they just really, really wanted to antagonize women. And the main sort of conversations they were having were sort of laughing at women trying to get up the ranks through French media. And I had heard rumors about this like years ago, like including the name and thought it was just, it was too vast of a conspiracy. The name was far too stupid to be real. <laughs> uh, but it turns out uh, reality is as stupid as, as, as the rumors. Put. Indeed, and men can be as terrible as we suspect sometimes. I gotta ask then, how did this finally get exposed? If this, there's been rumors for years. What, what finally blew it out of uh, the, the shadows? Started with a subtweet, uh, you know? 
Yeah, I love it. Uh, so uh, the French word for like Twitter drama is tweet clash. And uh, this tweet group clash? actually did their tweet clash. And so like this, this group's big thing was they would find ways to start tweet clashes and then use that to harass people. And so ironically, this did start with oh. <laughs> a tweet clash. They found look, Brexit done crossed the ocean and found Ryan Broderick. Uh, <laughs> hey, wow. Sorry guys. I, I got a little bit of time left here before they okay. come get me. Um, uh, it started with it started with a Twitter fight. Um, uh, basically it all kicked off when people started tweeting about it. It bubbled up, and then finally the, the dam broke. Okay, uh, we'll let you go uh, deal with those lights in there. Mercy, Ryan. Bon stay voyage. safe. Yeah, stay safe. <laughs> <laughs> well, for decades, uh, NBC's Bob Costas, I think he's pretty beloved. Uh, he was also, of course, one of the signature voices of football in American culture. But last year, the announcer was pulled from the air just days before the Super Bowl between the Eagles and the trigger warning Patriots. <laughs> Let's look at this tweet from ESPN's Mark Fainaruwada, outside the Lions exclusive, how broadcasting icon Bob Costas went from fronting America's most popular sport to being yanked from the Super Bowl for talking about football and brain damage. Everyone walks on eggshells around the NFL. Mm, well, Mark joins us now. Good morning. Morning, guys. How are you? We are good. And listen, this story is so fascinating. Uh, so, what do we know about what led to the breakup, basically, between uh, Bob Costas and uh, the in, the NFL? Well, I mean, it's interesting. Bob had been, you know, saying these things uh, for years, actually, sometimes on NBC um, about the issue of, of football and brain damage, which is an issue me and my colleagues at ESPN have been covering for years, and, and written about this growing link between playing football and the possibility of acquiring brain damage. And so Casas had been talking about these things at various points, um, but there had been building tension between him and NBC. Of course, there's this odd dynamic that exists when a TV network is paying billions of dollars to air NFL games, and then you've got somebody like Bob Costas, arguably the most respected broadcaster in, in sports, saying these things. And, and the tension finally bubbled over leading into the Super Bowl last year when Costas at least according to his version of events, um, says he, he's one time too many said something and NBC decided that he was no longer the person to be sort of fronting football. Um, he was scheduled to do his last Super Bowl and his last football game. And months before that, after Costas had basically said in front of an audience at the University of Maryland, this game destroys people's brains, um, the network decided he was not going to host the Super Bowl after all. Mark, but I mean, help me here though. Is, is it really that controversial right. an opinion to have today? I mean, President Trump was out there a few weeks ago saying that he wouldn't want his son Barron playing football because of this. Well, is it just because it's Bob Costas saying this that made it so controversial? No, I, I think actually it's it's much more, uh, I think it speaks much more largely to the power and influence of the NFL at this point. I mean, this is a $14 billion entity. It's a big business like any other big business. And the league has really forcefully fought back against this idea that players could end up getting brain damage from playing football. Um, and, and the last thing I think they want is for, uh, you know, people who are fronting the sport, maybe the most iconic figure talking about football to be on the air repeatedly discussing this. And, and this is not to say that the NFL called NBC and told them to pull Bob Costas, but the networks, including our own at ESPN, feel these pressures by virtue of these television contracts and the power of the league. And, and so I think this question is not so much about whether people accept this at this point, 
but whether about uh, whether it's about the the influence and the pressure that's at play when you've got these billion dollar television contracts. Billion-dollar television contrast. Well, to honor um, Bob Costas's original point, can you talk to us a bit about the relationship between playing football and and brain damage? What do we know? Sure. Well, we, we have been covering this for a while. My brother and I, uh, colleague Steve Fanaru, we wrote a book called League of Denial, and there was a PBS documentary of the same name uh, following that reporting. And and basically, what you've got is a building body of evidence over the course of the last. Um, really decade or more um, that points to the link in the connection between football and brain damage. Um, not everybody's going to get it just like not everybody who smokes is going to get cancer, but there seems to be a, a, a strong body of evidence, particularly linking repetitive hits, not just the big blows that you see uh, highlighted even on ESPN or other networks where uh, a defensive back hammers a wide receiver, but rather these repetitive blows that happen at the line of scrimmage time and time again between offensive and defensive linemen or a linebacker and a running back. And so this is the kind of stuff that's happening on virtually every play. And the science is in increasingly pointing to this being a problem. And, you know, th at this point, uh, there have been a number of players diagnosed posthumously with having this brain disease called CTE um, that is believed to be linked to repetitive trauma from, from football. Mark, just lastly, you work at SPN, you're sort of steeped in football culture. I'm just wondering, how do you think the average sort of football fan reconciles this kind of, their love for the game, but then also this increasingly clear science that it is uh, literally destroying some people? Well, I think it's probably different for, for, you know, there's a few different factions of how to deal with this. Some is probably denial, but I, I think a lot of it is, you know, look, this is, the sport is unbelievably entertaining, obviously. It's the most popular sport in America. There's, there's just no question about it. More than 100 million people watch the Super Bowl. So um, I think there's a, there's a push and pull that people are feeling. There's an ability to, to sort of have a distance from this and, and believe that you're enjoying the sport while setting aside the, these sort of realities. And I think that's what was really interesting about talking to Costas was I think he felt like it was important for fans to try to reconcile this for themselves, or at least to try to confront these realities and then have their own sort of inner discussion and decision about what they were gonna do. Indeed, starting an important discussion. Marks, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, stay tuned for Saeed's sit down with Moonlight star Andre Hollard, but up next, it's Fire Tweets. I love when we talk about sports. <laughs> I can sense that. Welcome back. Uh, I'm glad we took a shot of that snow because this morning when it started, Saeed was like, everyone, it's snowing. And we all looked out the window and we're like, it's not snowing. And yet. that's called gas whiting. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into these fire tweets. Here we go. Uh, Tasha tweeted, Romeo, she's alive. Dude, Juliet, gee, she's alive. Oh, God. Oh, God. He has his AirPods in. He can't hear me. Oh, God. Oh, fuck. <laughs> that was a clusterfuck of a I, uh, I'm, that's a dramatic reading. It was, like, and you gave us life. Shakespearean, there you go. Uh, where are you on the, the weirdly hot AirPods debate? I didn't realize they were so controversial. I, they fall out of my ears. I can't wear them. I have weird ears. Oh. Yeah. Ask Rose, our sound engineer here. I, I, my ears are like weird. Is that true, yeah. Rose? She says yes. She says <laughs> he has weird ears. Okay. Our next week comes from Ariana, not grande. Dating a smart girl is like dating a detective who is on the case of why you suck. 
I have no experience in this. I, is <laughs> well, that true? <laughs> let me take this one. <laughs> the, uh, the Onion tweeted, love The Onion, pedestrian crossing street, make sure to look at approaching car so driver will feel more guilty if they run him over. Oh, that's real. I definitely yes. do that. I definitely... Yes. That's a very new, I think that's a very New York thing too. To just like stare them down. Oh yeah, you do. I do the... I'm like, I'm walking, I'm like... I'm... <laughs> I still got five seconds. There's a lot of acting this morning. Oh yeah, great. you know we're in an Oscar. We have wireless mic packs now. Yeah, that's yeah. Good. You have to dare them to hit you. Oh, it's the only way. It's the only way. Okay, we have. You daring one. me? I'll don't, <laughs> don't don't take the hit because you'll do it. Okay, this comes from Leon. I live a simple life. I wake up, eat breakfast, go to work, spend the rest of the day following various internecine. Conflicts online between warring factions of what can only be described as socio-political fandoms, skincare, routine wash, toner, serum, moisturizer, and go to bed. Interesting? Internecine? Internecine? We both learned this word. Internecine? Internet. I don't think I learned it because I don't. Just using the hashtag AMTDM. What is the correct pronunciation of that word? Anyway, here we go. Tweet of the day. You ready for this? From my old buddy Ish, a uh, lady in the byline, but a freak on the timeline. Hit send, great tweet. Uh, that's you really my new identified Twitter. with this. That is my new Twitter bio, Ish. I'm stealing that. Uh, okay. I feel like you have a different. I have a different personality on Twitter than I have if you like read my work. That's, that's true. That's normal. That's fair. Lady in the byline, freak on the timeline. I don't. It's it's. I'm oh, pretty yeah. consistent. You're a mess across like all it. platforms. Thank you. It's true. Well, coming up, um, you get to see my sit-down interview with Andre Holland. He is so. Wonderful Moonlight, Selma, The Nick, Castle Rock, and now a new movie on Netflix, High Flying Bird. But before we get to that wonderful black excellence, we gotta go live from the district. Welcome back. We are going live from the district. Here's a tweet from the New York Times. U.S. House and Senate negotiators agreed in principle to provide $1.375 billion for fencing and other physical barriers at the Mexican border, part of an agreement that would stave off another partial government shutdown without funding Trump's war. Well, joining us now to talk about this story and, of course, more is BuzzFeed News politics reporter Nidhi Prakash. Hey, Nidhi. Hello, good morning. Hi, it's always good to talk to you. Okay, so at this point, do we have any indications that Trump is actually going to sign this very hard to pin down deal? So this is always the big question mark with these deals, right? Um, so the uh, Senate Appropriations Chair, Republican Richard Shelby, has said that the White House is bought into these negotiations, that they are aware of what's going on, um, and that he has the consent to enter into these negotiations. But you know, having said that, last year they thought they had Trump on side to sign as well, and he changed his mind last minute. So it's very hard to say what he'll do. There is a cabinet meeting coming up in about an hour and a half from now, I think, um, and we make an indication then of what he's thinking about this. Yeah, I think he was on stage at the rally last night when this kind of, uh, he found out about this, right? And uh, was sort of kind of saying, don't worry, everyone, we're going to build the wall, right? So it's not 100% clear. Right. I mean, that was interesting because it seems like he actually said that his advisors tried to inform him of what was going on and he said, no, 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 don't tell me about it right now. So I'm not sure what we can kind of read into that. But wait, I guess wait, wait, we'll wait, I'm today. sorry. His advisors were trying to tell him what was going on with this very high stakes deal and he said, no, 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 don't tell me about it. Why? Do we know why? <laughs> I'm, I, I mean, that's what he told the crowd. I don't know. It's not to say. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Don't try to make sense of this. I, 
Like, that is a crazy thing to do. Uh, look, I want to talk about this Texas rally last night because well, we want to focus on two things that happened there in particular. First, here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. A Trump supporter shoved journalists and shouted, fuck the media at the president's Texas rally. Nidhi, what happened? Was anyone hurt? So uh, no one was hurt, fortunately, but basically this came about when Trump, as usual, um, at some point during his rally, started criticizing the media, complaining that, um, you know, no matter what he does, that it's always going to be negative coverage. Um, and then a Trump supporter, I guess, kind of snapped and like started to have a go at one of the journalists there. I think it was a BBC photographer and sort of got to the point of shoving them. Um, I think that there were no injuries, but it's, I mean, it's a pretty scary thing. I do know from being at Trump rallies that when that kind of sentiment is stirred up, that it's kind of, it is quite confronting to have like a whole crowd full of people just like kind of booing you. Um, I've, you know, obviously in the rallies that I've covered, I've never seen it come to violence, but I guess this can happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's intimidating to be on set just having people look at you while you're trying to do your job to say nothing of an entire, you know, rally of people like booing. Yeah. That's, that is scary. Um, well, that's not the only thing, of course, of note that happened at the rally last night. Here's a tweet about it uh, from Vox's uh, Aaron Rupar. Holy shit, President Trump falsely accuses Governor Ralph Northam of Virginia of saying he supports a newborn coming into the world and wrap the baby and make the baby comfortable and then talk to the mother and then talk to the father and then execute the baby, execute the baby. Uh, angry booze ensued. It sounds like a nursery rhyme from The Handmaid's Tale. Um, but Nitty, uh, that is wild uh, coming from the president of the United States. It's also obviously a lie. So is this the first time Trump has recently used this kind of rhetoric of executing a live baby? You know, um, it isn't. I think that we saw language very similar to this in the State of the Union, and it seems like an indication of what we can expect going into 2020 from him. Yeah, kind of continued focus on these uh, social issues, not just immigration, but of course abortion, obviously, going forward. And this is all going back to uh, Ralph Northam's comments right. in Virginia, and obviously. Right. Which are hard to remember at hard this point. Hard to remember in the news because cycle. we've got. And I think Trump did say last night at the rally that he's enjoyed this whole Virginia thing, right, Nitty, because it's kept him off the front page for a while as wow. well. Well, I'm glad there's a silver lining. <laughs> I want to go to this tweet from Sarah Mims in our DC Bureau. Uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has apologized for using, quote, anti-Semitic tropes in a tweet after Democratic leaders criticized her. Nidhi, what interests me about this whole uh, controversy yesterday was what it said about the kind of uh, ideological divide now present in the Democratic Party. You had Pelosi coming out pretty strongly and then Omar kind of having to uh, eventually sort of cave in and apologize. Right. And still you framed it like it's old guard and new guard. A little bit of that. I'm wondering what do you think, Nidhi? Uh, uh, are we gonna see more of this in the Democratic Party going forward? I mean, I think what it suggests to me is that American foreign policy towards Israel is something that's going to be up for debate, but very clearly that anti-Semitism is not going to be accepted as part of this conversation. I mean, that was very loud and clear from leadership on both sides here. Right, which is a good thing, right? Like, okay, let's debate the issues, but we're going to do this with nuance. Um, but speaking to the conversation that obviously must have taken place between Speaker Pelosi and Ilan Omar, do we have a sense of how that phone call went? I mean, it's interesting because uh, as Pelosi tweeted out her statement calling for Representative Omar to uh, apologize yesterday, in that same tweet, she said that they'd had a conversation. So it's sort of interesting because presumably during that conversation, they would have talked about whether or not she should apologize. But still, Pelosi put out the statement kind of condemning what she'd said and saying that she needs to apologize, which obviously then she did do. 
Okay. Um, well, Nidhi, before we let you go, uh, this subject, we do have uh, one more very important question for you um, about the news, and that is, uh, where do you stand in your support of the Patriots football team? <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you where I stand on football in general, which is that I really honestly do not give a damn. Okay, see? <laughs> I'm really sorry. See? And that's why I give her a round of applause. That, that's why it is always a pleasure to have you on that is the Australian Nitty answer. Thank you, Nitty. <laughs> Good. Right, exactly. Thank you. Yes, thank, you. <laughs> thank you for joining us this morning, Nitty. Thanks so much. She gets it. She, she does. gets it. All right, up next, you get to see my sit down interview with actor Andre Holland. He is wonderful. He also executive produced the new film he stars in for Netflix, High Flying Bird. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm joined by actor Andre Holland. You know him from everything uh, Moonlight. Selma, Castle Rock, The Nick, uh, and now his new film, High Flying Bird, directed by Steven Soderbergh, is on Netflix. So, hello, get familiar. Uh, hi. How you doing? <laughs> this is such a pleasure. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've seen all, all kinds of work. Um, you play a sports agent during an NBA lockout, which mm -hmm. is in no way stressful, uh, <laughs> in High Flying Bird, but you also executive produce uh, the film, which yeah. is, that's interesting. So why did you want to tell this story? Well, the the whole thing started with conversations that Steven Soderbergh and I were having back on set when we okay. were doing The Nick mm -hmm. uh, back, what, five years ago. Okay. And uh, it was at a moment in my career personally where I felt like I wanted to have more agency, more, mm. you know, say over the decisions and the sort of shape of my career. Okay. Um, so those conversations combined with some other conversations that Steven were, and I were having just mm -hmm. around like sports and, and, and politics mm -hmm. sort of led to this idea. Okay, and it's uh, funny you bring that up because yeah. I was of course just thinking about the Super Bowl and yeah. you know, you've worked with Ava and you know, she's been very uh, eloquent in talking about you know, Colin Kaepernick and, and, and protesting the Super Bowl. And so I did want to ask like, it's, is this an ongoing conversation for you personally, sports and politics now they come together? Yeah, very much so, mm -hmm. very much so. When we first started talking about the about the film, Stephen and I it was around mm -hmm. the time that the Donald Sterling tapes came out. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, exactly. So, and then since that time, obviously, you know, Colin Kaepernick's situation has mm -hmm. been happening. Mm -hmm. You know, LeBron having his home vandalized with right. the N word wow. and the shut up and dribble and all these mm -hmm. things that we hear uh, going on. So it's definitely a part of um, my own personal consciousness. Mm -hmm. And. and uh, you know, woven into the fabric of the film, too. Right, yeah. Um, you, I saw an interview you did, and you were, uh, just the other day, and you were talking about uh, the role the Negro Sports League plays mm -hmm. in, like, kind of American history, and, of course, it is Black History Month. Uh, what is, what's an aspect of that history, you know, that you wish more people knew about? Well, you know, when I did this, this film, 42, okay. by Jackie Robinson, yeah. you know, many years ago, and so in doing the research for that part, I got, I came to know a lot more about the mm -hmm. Negro Leagues, and the thing I remember taking away from it was that Prior to you know Jackie Robinson integrating Major League Baseball, mm -hmm. which of course was a wonderful thing, mm -hmm. but the the underside of that was that this this you know hugely profitable, successful black enterprise mm -hmm. was decimated as mm -hmm. a result of that. You know, oh. yeah, and you don't really think about the sort of mm -hmm. under the underbelly of mm -hmm. these of these transactions. That, like out of the segregation, there was this vibrant black business. Oh man, yeah, I mean it was huh. vibrant, and and like I mean you look at cities like my city, Birmingham. Or, okay. Cities like Pittsburgh, Detroit, mm -hmm. that had these major mm -hmm. these major teams. You know, you have hotels that spring up around them, and restaurants, mm -hmm. and ticket takers. There's a whole mm -hmm. ecosystem, you know, built around those teams. And so, of course, when Jackie went to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers, mm -hmm. the people who were seeing going to see the you know the the Crawfords play mm -hmm. now want to go see if Jackie's going to make good. Wow. And so that impacts the whole 
So economic infrastructure. So that's, that's also, levels, no? yeah, it's, it's fascinating, <laughs> man. It's fascinating. But that's one of the things I was interested in exploring with this project mm-hmm. is, is what's the underside of these right. things? Right? Absolutely. Um, you know, of course, we were, we were talking before we went live. I, I saw you um, at the Public Theater in Terrell Alvin McCraney's Brother Sister plays with Brian Tyree Henry, Sterling K. Brown. Like, I think it was 2009. It was like, wow. Yeah, it was a while ago. So good. Time for a revival. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of people also know you from your work with Steve Son- Steve and Sonnenberg on The Nick, they work together on this. And I think of their their work being pretty different. So what was it like kind of having them both, you know, in the same room creatively? It was amazing. It was amazing. I remember the first time that they met, mm-hmm. uh, the three of us met on Stephen's birthday, actually. Okay. <laughs> um, and just, I, you know, I sat and just sort of listened to the two of them talk. I mean, two great minds, like, you know, talking about this really interesting idea. It was, mm. it was really powerful. In a way, I think that they're kind of perfectly suited for each other. Mm. Because Terrell's work tends to be, you know, hyperverbal. Mm-hmm. I mean, like hyperverbal. Mm-hmm. You know, the movie is this, it feels like a play at mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of any director who could who could capture those kinds of two people in a room having mm-hmm. a conversation in a cinematic way mm-hmm. as well as Stephen does. Okay. All right, meeting yeah. of the minds. Yeah. Um, well, well, to that point, um, working with Terrell, you know, you've worked with him on stage and Moonlight. Congratulations. Thank you. That thank was you. a great little project that did pretty well. Yeah. Um, and, and, and now with this movie, uh, that's wonderful. That is uh, going on like a 10-year creative relationship at the least. Uh, what What is it about Terrell? I mean, a lot of people are being introduced to his work now via Netflix or Choir Boy, but what is it like working with him in such a sustained way? It's amazing. Mm. It's, it's the most significant pro- professional relationship that I've that I have. I mm. mean, his discovering his work really is what I think gave me a career. Mm. You know, I came out of grad school and, and felt completely lost and I didn't know quite where I belonged. Mm. And the two of us got introduced and right away I thought, you know what, this guy's writing about people that, that I recognize. Mm. There's a place for me here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I basically have been following him around for the past 15 <laughs> years and I don't plan on letting him go. So. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love it. Um, yeah. Speaking of grad school, I know you went to school with Denai Guerrero. I did. That's yeah. incredible. And, yeah. I, and I think the New York Times you two did a little piece yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Recently. I was getting my whole life like, oh my God, these two <laughs> actors and they know each other and they're friends. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of her, you know, Black Panther, The Walking Dead, tough, fearsome, rightfully so, women. Yeah. Is she is she like that in real life? Like, what's <laughs> Listen. <laughs> Are you scared of your friends? Denai's tough. Okay. She's tough. Now, she's also, you know, sweet, uh-huh. and soft, and kind when she mm-hmm. wants to be, but, you know, she, as we used to say in the South, she don't take no tea for the fever. Oh, she's a she's a tough one. But what's great about that, you know, that 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 program that mm-hmm. we went to, NYU's grad okay. program. Then I went there, myself, Sterling K. Brown went there. Wow, Mahershala went there. Wow. Uh, I mean, there's like I could go on. Uh-huh. Susan Kalichi Watson, who's okay. on this is yes. us with Sterling, went there. I mean, uh-huh. so many people came out of that program. It's. Uh, there's something really special that they have going over there. Okay, so I love this. I love yeah. finding out, like, brilliant people. It's not a coincidence that they're vibing and everything, that actually it's, it's like, you know, community. Uh, what's it like having these long relationships with all these wonderful creative minds and actors, and y'all are all doing so well now? What's it feel like? It's great. It feels like a little, like a little family, man. Mm. It's like, you know, there are times when, you know, I'll get sent a script or, mm-hmm. I'll, or, or I'll be working on a project and I might feel stuck and mm-hmm. I'll call Denai and be like, D, you know, will you read this thing with me? Help me mm-hmm. figure this thing out. Or mm-hmm. she may call me and say, Andre, I'm working on this idea. What do you think mm-hmm. about this? What do you think about this book? You know? Wow. And the same is true of like of Terrell and of Sterling mm-hmm. and of, you know, our whole community. Mm-hmm. We really, really work hard to support each other. And that feels, I think that to me is like the best thing about having gone to that training program is the community. Wow. That you get as a result. That's incredible. Y'all don't have a group text, do you? I have a group text with Brian, 
Tyree and Sterling and Terrell and several other people. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, <laughs> You can join if you want to. Oh, don't, don't threaten me with that. time now, Andre. Don't threaten me. I wouldn't know what to do. But uh, the other thing is, that, of course, you know, Netflix love to just surprise people. Yeah. That is kind yeah, of, the, yeah. Netflix is like, okay, we see you, Beyonce. We're going to do this, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this movie was a surprise announcement and it's a thrill. Uh, I wanted to know, what are you working on next? Do you have any other surprises for us? Well, I got, I got a few up my sleeve. Okay. But in the immediate future, mm-hmm. I'm going to take a little bit of a break just because, okay. um, you know, I need to. It's real. You know, take care of, mm-hmm. of myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, spend some time with my with my parents, okay. and with my family, and uh, yeah, and then I'll figure out what's going to be next. But I love that. Mostly, I'm 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 producing going okay. forward, so I'm really really excited about a few projects, which I'll okay. come back and talk to you about soon. Anytime. Anytime. All right. Well, Andre, <laughs> thank you so much for joining thank us you. this morning. Thank you for having me. Shining. Keep thank shining. you, uh, friends. High Flying Bird is on Netflix now. Watch it and tweet about it. Uh, more AM to DM is up next. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back. BuzzFeed News' Adam Bivari tweeted, Michael Jackson's estate is invoking the mental health issues of one of his sexual abuse accusers in trying to discredit the upcoming HBO doc, Leaving Neverland. Adam joins me now. Adam, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Adam, uh, who are the key players in the fight over this documentary? Well, buckle up, because this is a whole thing. Uh, (laughs) So uh, on the film side, there's the director, Dan Reed, Uh, He's a documentarian who's primarily done films about war and terrorism prior to this. He interviewed James Safechuck and Wade Robson. And both are alleging that when when they were children, Michael Jackson engaged them separately in years-long sexual relationships. Uh, Safechuck says that they began when he was 10, and Robson says they began when he was 7 years old. On the other side are uh, essentially Jackson's family and his estate. Uh, When the film first premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in uh, last month, uh, Jackson's family put out a statement attacking the film, calling it a public lynching. And uh, last week, uh, Jackson's estate released a 10-page letter to HBO, and then yesterday to uh, Channel 4 in the UK, those are the co-producers of the documentary, uh, detailing uh, all of the ways that the estate believes that Safe Chuck and especially Robson uh, are not credible, and basically attacking them as uh, in this for money and uh, lying through their teeth. Right, and talk to me about the kind of mental health issues that are coming into play. Well, you know, part of the issue here is that for many, many years, Robson and Safe Chuck defended Michael Jackson and said that they had never been in any way uh, sexually molested by him. Uh, in the early 1990s, when the f- uh, first scandal broke about Michael Jackson, and then in 2005, when Michael Jackson was actually put on trial for sexual molestation, Wade Robson testified in Jackson's defense. So uh, there's uh, a lot of criticism that, you know, why were you, were you lying then or are you lying now? That's the sort of line that uh, Jackson's estate is taking. Uh, in response, in the documentary, Robson talks about how for many years he didn't see the way that Jackson treated him as abuse. And it wasn't until around 2011, 2012, after the birth of his young son, that he began to understand that what he alleges Michael Jackson did with him was actually sexual abuse, at which point he says that he started to have severe uh, mental breakdowns and nervous breakdowns. 
Now, in the letter that uh, Jackson's estate released to HBO, uh, the uh, the letter basically points to the fact that Robson's family has a history of suicidal depression. His father committed suicide in 2002. He has a uh, paternal cousin who committed suicide in, in 2012. And the letter basically says, unfortunately, major depression is a very heritable disease. Thus, it is no surprise that Robson had these breakdowns, basically pointing, blaming the suicides of his uh, father as and cousin as the culprits for these mental breakdowns. Unbelievable. Uh, you, you saw the documentary yourself at Sundance, Adam. Talk to yeah. me about what the mood was like in the room there. It was a pretty somber experience. It's a two-part documentary, lasts just about four hours, and it is a, a sort of a definition of a hard sit. Uh, the documentary goes into somewhat graphic detail as to the nature of what uh, Robson and uh, Safechuck allege happened with Michael Jackson sexually. And it's just also, you're basically watching a story about, in sort of very painstaking detail, how a pedophile uh, grooms not just the children, but the family. And um, all of it sort of with this layer of the fact that it's Michael Jackson, one of the biggest stars ever to exist in the world. Right. And I mean, hearing all the conversation around this now, it kind of obviously is bringing up similarities uh, between the recent Surviving R. Kelly docuseries as well. And I wonder, that had a huge kind of cultural impact uh, in the music yeah. and in the entertainment industry. Do you expect, having seen this yourself, do you expect this to have the same kind of impact? Well, that's the big question right now. That's the multi-million dollar question. I think that's one of the main reasons why Jackson's family and Jackson's estate are so vociferously attacking this film, because not only is it about Jackson's legacy as an artist, it's about the money that his uh, music still generates um, for everyone who is connected to him. Uh, and so if we're going to have a mute Michael Jackson uh, campaign the same way that there was the mute R. Kelly campaign, uh, that could have a huge monetary impact on the estate and the family. I don't know yet. You know, I think that uh, when HBO defended the film, uh, they basically said, you know, uh, we have to reserve judgment until people see it. And once people see it, they can decide for themselves. Uh, Michael Jackson's different than R. Kelly, though. He's the air we breathe. His music is ubiquitous everywhere. And I don't know how uh, even something as damning as this is going to uh, sort of make him disappear overnight. If any, if if he is going to disappear, it's going to be a long, drawn-out, painful process for a lot of fans who grew up, like myself, loving his music. Yeah, indeed. Well put. Adam, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's take this to the timeline, though. Uh, Leaving Neverland is coming out in two parts, March 3 and 4 on HBO. And I want to know, will you be tuning in? Let us know using the hashtag am am Up next, Saeed is on the Poets Hotline with Ross Gay. Stay tuned. This is Poets Hotline, and I'm joined by award-winning poet Ross Gay, um, the author of The Book of Delights. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Ross, I was so excited when I found out you had a book coming out and that I could talk to you. I was talking to producers. I was like, this is one of my favorite contemporary poets. Uh, Your work, just it just always brings me joy and, um, and just finds unexpected avenues, I think, for, for that introspection. So... For this book um, is a collection of 102 essays um, about joy. And you said it's a daily exercise in finding joy. What does that mean exactly? Mm. And and why did you decide to do it? 
Well, you know, I decided to do it like sort of weirdly. I was just walking in a place and had this experience of okay. being incredibly delighted. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, I should write a little essay about it, mm -hmm. you know? And then I thought, you know, it'd be interesting to actually write an essay about something that delighted me every day for a year. Wow. And I mean, at the time when I first decided it, I was going, I was at a writer's residency and okay. I was walking the like fields of sunflowers. Okay, and stuff. so plenty of opportunities. Yes, yes, plenty of opportunities. <laughs> but then so I thought, well, what if I do this for a year and make it into a, a practice or a, you know, a, a discipline, but let's say a practice. Uh -huh. um, what would that be like? Like, and that's sort of how it, that's how it came about. Yeah. What, what was one of the first like surprise moments when it became like a daily practice? Like you mentioned, you leave the beautiful residency, yeah, yeah. you're back home. What was it like when you got into it? I mean, it was soon. It was, it was not long at all until okay. I realized that I started to, um, you know, I thought there would be like a dearth of delight, you know? <laughs> And it didn't take long before I was like, oh, wow, look at the, you know, look at the shape of the way, look at the way that leaf fell on the ground, look uh -huh. at the squirrels, look at, you know, the way my partner, like, turns on the water, uh -huh. like, da, 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 you know, so something did okay. sort of, like, It became change. a way of seeing. Yeah, 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 something kind of opened up. Uh-huh, yeah. Absolutely. What would you say to, you know, um, poets, I think, uh, sometimes rightfully, yeah. have a reputation for being disconnected yeah. or, or abstract, and, and your work is so grounded. I mean, yeah. uh, one of my favorite poems by you, is it, it's about the natural world, and it's about mm. plants, and it's about Eric Gardner, mm. you know, and that, that poem where you kind of talk about plants kind of help us breathe yeah, and yeah, what yeah. that means. Um, so you're not disconnected. Yeah. Is that something, though, that you kind of have to deal with, you know, when people are discussing your work? And you're talking, when you say that, yeah, that just being like, the, like you're just like, you're out in the garden, you're, yeah. fr you're frolicking with the flowers, but we got uh, real yeah. problems Oh, yeah, here. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think part of the part of the tension of the book that I think is an interesting tension of the book is that it it is constantly aware of and sometimes over, gets overridden in a way by the sort of um, brutality, uh. you know? Um, so it's not, it, I think what's interesting to me about the, the project and the, and the practice was that I was not at all like, disentangling myself from the the violence that we encounter in our lives, you know. Um, and but and yet that was not the ground of my sort of labor in this this one. That was not the ground of my labor. Uh -huh. Yeah. Well let's let's talk about more of the labor. Um, some of your favorite essays in the book. High five tells the story of a girl who five high fives you in a coffee shop because you thought she thought you were doing your homework, which is adorable. <laughs> Whenever I've been working on my book, like on planes and stuff, yeah. people assume I'm working on homework. Really? Yeah, it's so, it's so funny. Um, how does that piece can capture the connection between touch and joy, that high five? You know, that's just like one of these moments where it was such a strange thing, you know. I was in a place I was not familiar with. It felt very much like, it, it felt like not my place, okay. you know. <laughs> and then to have this kid sort of surprise me um, and want to like congratulate me for something, you know, it didn't matter. I wasn't doing homework. Uh -huh. um, I was doing work. I mean, I was doing homework, yeah. <laughs> Kind of yeah, kind of depends. Yeah. Um, but but that in itself, it just felt like such a, a pleasant, and it's called like something like I say something like unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions, you know. And they happen all the time, yeah. you know. Yeah. But but to me, I wanted to sort of like exalt that, exalt that that thing of like when it's 
when, when touch is pleasant, when touch is okay, and touch is even encouraging, yeah. sort of, you know? It's beautiful. As we, and and I, this is very in line, another, I love this essay, Tomato on Board. Yeah. Um, you write about how people at an airport were nicer to you because you were holding uh, a tomato that you were caring for in your hands. Yeah. yeah. Just tell us about that whole experience. It's the truth. <laughs> my, my friend gave me a, a tomato, um, and I was in Vermont, and... He gave me a tomato that he had grown from seed from a friend of his in Sicily. Really good sauce tomato ended up being the most productive tomato I've ever grown, okay. you know? <laughs> but I, I was walking through the airport and I was kind of like, eh, I probably shouldn't be carrying my tomato out and I put it in my bag. Okay. <clears throat> and then I was kind of looked in there and I noticed that I kind of broke a little bit of the tomato uh -huh. and I thought, okay, I better carry it out. And I, oh, actually I went through the um, security oh, okay. and the security oh, person was like, tomato, <laughs> You got a tomato in your bag, like, I love it. I don't know what to do with that. Have a good one, you know? Yeah, I love <laughs> it. It's kind of like that, yeah. I love it. Well, of course, I'm so excited for everyone to read the book and, and share it and be inspired. But for people watching this morning, I was wondering if you could just, as a kind of parting gesture, yeah. can you kind of give people a homework assignment on uh, writing about delights today? What, is, what do you would encourage them to do? Oh, yeah. Should I? Yeah. Talk? You can get tell. Why don't you look at this camera here? Yeah. Yeah. God, what? I mean, I would just say, like, study. Study what it is that is beautiful mm -hmm. in your midst. And what I would, you know, most importantly, I would say, like, to the extent that it is possible to study the, the myriad um, versions of care that are constantly in our midst, subtle and overt. Mm. That's, that's the thing I would say. If you want to write about it, write about it. If you want to, like, point at it, yeah. point at it. But I feel like let's notice that and put it in our notice bodies. It. Exalt it. Exalt it. Exalt. Ross, as always, thank, thank you, you so much. Oh, my heart. Okay. Thank you. Uh, you can read his book, The Book of Delights. It's out today. It's everywhere. And I always say this, buy two copies, one for yourself, one for someone you care about. Um, up next, David and I are going to read more of your tweets. Oh, you're such a sweetheart. Ah, thank you. <laughs>Welcome back. I just tweeted, my cheeks hurt a little bit because Ross Gay, talking to him about his writing, I smile so yeah. much like my face hurts. Everyone is smiling. He's just so, he's just so wonderful. And he's written many books. So, you know, get this and get others. Um, Shelly J tweeted about something he said. Um, study, what, um, study what is beautiful in our midst. Wow, cool. I love crying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just, oh gosh. I'm so excited to have a new book from him to like go out. And in fact, I was in a bookstore like a month ago and I, mm -hmm. they had like the title and I like, I was trying to like flirt with the bookseller. Like, I know you got something in the back. You could, and they were like, we don't, it's literally not here. Sorry. So anyway, I'm excited. Um, but we also asked you how you would fix the Oscars because that is not wholesome and yeah. joyful like Ross Gay. Tanya had this to say, get rid of all the goddamn montages. Um, salute to salutes. <laughs> Chop it. Tribute <laughs> to people uh, dancing while being in a movie. Cut it. Cheers to a compilation of a movie lines you recognize. Bye. If you got rid of all the in incredibly silly pre-tape videos, you'd have plenty of time. I couldn't agree with <laughs> more. They're always like, a tribute to cinema. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like because the Grammys just happened and they have like, the Grammys, like there's actual performances that they right. do, right? Yeah. Like right. Things to see. The uh -huh. Oscars get jealous. They're like, God, how do we like yeah. get... Like, how do we do Casablanca on yeah. stage? And they end up, like, the same shit every year. Yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it's out of sync. And, like, the Grammys, of course, even with the performances, right, still are really struggling, I think, yeah. to be in sync with where we are in technology. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, like, it's not like, 
I don't know. I, it seems like something dramatic needs to, to be reshaped in, in, in terms of the format. You and I should do it. That's Obviously, I mean. that would solve all of the uh, problems. <laughs> Sherry Foreman added, <laughs> at this point, they should just say, to hell with it, and tweet out the winners. The winners can then post their acceptance speeches if they want to. I did think about that. It's is cheap. It, it's is cheap. there a way? I mean, in the way that they do, like, that they announce the nominees, like, I wondered if there's a way, like, it's a live stream, kind of more contained... Mm. If there would be a way to honor, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, we we want, of course, to honor great work. I'm not going to pretend to be too cynical about that. But, like, it just, is there another faster way? I don't know. Mm, it sucks. I feel like all of these people have, like, this weird cloud hanging yeah. over, over the Oscars this year. Yeah, anyway. it's been a mess. Um, well, we also, of course, talked to the wonderful Andre Holland. He is so smart and thoughtful. Jen had this to say about our interview. Steven Sonnenberg is one of the few white dudes who actually made good on bringing uh, in more people and working across a very diverse spectrum and did it without making a spectacle of it. I, you know, Jen, I feel like the moment you tweet something like that, the news cycle goes left. <laughs> But let's let's hope. After Esquire today, good job. <laughs> uh, but uh, he is one of my favorite directors. Really? As well, yeah. I'm fascinated by him making the making High Flying Bird, the Netflix movie, on his on an iPhone. And it's not the first time he's done that. Okay. He is obsessed with the iPhone, and he that's just really keeps interesting. Making films on iPhones now. We should ask him like, what what would you do with the Oscars? You know, in terms yeah, of right? changing <laughs> it around. I, don't know. I think he'd do that tweet out the video thing that sounds cheap. <laughs> anyway, thank you to our guests today: Ryan Broderick, Mark Finerwada, Nidhi Prakash, Andre Holland, Adam B. Bari, and Ross. What a great day. Isaac will be back here tomorrow with me at 10 a.m. Find the delight in your day, friends, and share it with people. Have a great day. Bye.